0: You're listening to Ono oh No Lit Class, dead authors, fresh takes,
1: and the epilogues you never knew you needed.
0: on your goodreads profile and judges you i'm megan i'm rj and um this is actually the first episode that we recorded since going live with the podcast which is you know interesting we had uh, pre-recorded the first three to kind of give us a buffer and so that's why we are making jokes about m night the movie split in march oh well and also, not, you know, we didn't have a website yet and all that fun stuff. But now we've, uh, we've learned things and we fixed our, our audio issues and we'll be able to list our correct social media outlets and, you know, actually tell you when the next episode is going to be like a big kid grown up podcast should do.
1: We made M.I. Chamwon jokes?
0: Y- yeah, yeah, you did.
1: I did? You did.
0: You <laughs> specifically. I'm topical. How quickly we... Well, yeah, you were topical when we recorded it in, like, January.
1: It's still topical.
0: Oh, boy. So, also, we just want to say thank you to everyone who's followed us on Facebook and uh, subscribed to us on iTunes and, like, Google Play and stuff, even though it's pretty much just our family and friends and coworkers that we forced into doing it. It's still super cool, and thank you, and that's awesome. Uh, I think that's everything that I wanted to say. This episode's going to be a little bit different because instead of talking about a whole uh, book, we're going to be looking at a famous poet. I don't uh, think
1: she spoke like that. No,
0: she totally spoke like that. She's like, I'm a famous poet and my name is... Actually, she was from Massachusetts, right? Yeah. So it was more like, my name is Emily Dickinson and I'm wicked awesome and I love chowder.
1: That's not what she talked about. Like That's either.
0: totally what she sounded like. No. What did she sound like, RJ?
1: Hey, yo, it's me, Emily Dickinson. All right. I'm writing poetry over yeah. here.
0: Welcome to O class. We're definitely not a one trick pony. <laughs>
1: I have two tricks.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's the second trick, RJ?
1: M. Night Shyamalan jokes.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, RJ, let's let's get started. Let's take us, take us on the journey of a, a young woman known as Emily Dickinson.
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. Before we settled on Emily Dickinson, I didn't know too much about her. I think I knew what they kind of teach us in school. She's a shut in, she wrote poetry, she wrote about snakes and other things.
0: That's what your teacher said to you. Here's the shut in who wrote about snakes. I think y'all are going to really enjoy it.
1: That's that's the one that stuck with me. Uh, but, but,
0: but that's, I mean, I was in the same boat too. Like, I'm not... I mean, I'm not super into uh, her whole steez. I knew what my teachers had told me, which is pretty much the same thing. Here's a recluse who wrote a lot of poems, and they're all written in a meter. That means you can say them to the theme of Gilligan's Island.
1: But now, researching her a bit, I've come to learn and understand her seclusion, and my thesis now on Emily Dickinson...
0: Your thesis.
1: ...is that she believed she was a mutant who whoever she came in contact with she killed and so she locked herself in a room so she didn't come in contact with people
0: so you're saying emily dickinson is actually the inspiration for the character of rogue from the x-men yes go
1: on so let's go through the biography emily dickinson born in 1830 she was born in massachusetts lived in massachusetts died in Massachusetts. Because she didn't really ever travel so far. Um, She was born to semi-wealthy parents. Her dad was a lawyer. He became a congressman and a statesman. She had a brother and a sister. The brother was older. The sister was younger. Emily obviously enjoyed writing, which is the focus of this episode. She also enjoyed music, which she called, for some reason, the music music. I'm not kidding you, Megan. <laughs> there yeah, it is.
0: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. There it is. The music. She
1: might have been a cow. She
0: might have been. She might have been X-Men. She might have been a cow. Emily Dickinson was an enigmatic lady, and a good portion of that was because she spent uh, the, pretty much the whole latter uh, portion of her life kind of shut up in her home, but we're going to get to that. So you said she loved writing. She loved music. She also loved cooking and baking, In fact, so much so that when their housekeeper quit and she took over the duties of, like, baking the bread and everything, even when they got a new one, the rest of her family was like, no, you keep doing it because you do it the
1: best. One of the other things that I did not know about her, I'm not sure how many people know about her, is aside from being a baker, she was also a self-taught botanist. She had a 66-page leather-bound herbarium. I never seen that word before. Her, 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 her herbarium. But within those sixty herbarium. within those sixty six pages, she uh, had four hundred and twenty four pressed flower specimens that she collected. Apparently, she would collect bunches of flowers, send it to friends and family, and she would also attach poetry verses to the flowers.
0: Well, she also would send food out to people, that she would, like, mail cookies and, uh, cakes and stuff to her friends and family. She would also put a bunch of, like, baked goods in a basket and lower it outside her window for, like, the neighborhood children to enjoy, which is a great mental image. Uh, so basically the sort of reductive statement of Emily Dickinson was a a recluse who wrote poetry is, uh, you know, kind of shitty. Emily Dickinson was pretty cool. She did a whole bunch of stuff, All right, let's get back into Emily Dickinson and her sad, sad life. Why is it a sad, sad life, RJ?
1: So, as I said earlier, born in 1830.
0: Yeah, you did say that. I did. Her dad was a a congressman and a statesman, if I recall.
1: I believe I was interrupted for my time on.
0: Older brother, younger sister.
1: (laughs) And then we veered off to cake.
0: Cake? I mean, can you blame me?
1: So... The first uh, bout with death that Emily Dickinson had, had was in 1844. Her second cousin and close friend died of typhus. Emily became so sad and depressed about this, she was sent to Boston to recover, that her parents, <laughs> parents sent her away. And I don't think
0: Boston's ever made anyone better.
1: <laughs> and then they took her back in when she stopped being so sad, because that's healthy, to send your kid away, go be sad elsewhere.
0: Yeah. Go, go it. Come back when you're happier.
1: The next year, she was back at home. The town of Amherst, where she lived with her folks, was undergoing some religious revival at the time that everyone was like, God's pretty good. And Emily's family...
0: God's pretty neat and stuff, guys.
1: Emily's family, well, you, was you they could trace it back to the Puritans who came over on the Mayflower, so they're kind of religious. Emily never really... Was all that religious?
0: Although we can, we're gonna circle back to that. Hold that thought.
1: Eventually, she went to college, which was within ten miles of home, which is about as far as she ever got from home. While there, she became friends with a man named Leonard Humphrey. Leonard is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I feel
0: like an asshole.
1: Um, so she became friends with Leonard in eighteen forty-seven. And in 1850, three years later, Leonard, who was the principal of Amherst, died at the age of 25.
0: Wow. What did he die of?
1: What they called brain congestion.
0: Okay. It was 1850. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair
1: enough. Another friend that Emily made while at college, Benjamin Franklin Newton.
0: Wolf. I wonder if he was named after someone.
1: He died in 1853. Oh, no. He died of tuberculosis.
0: Oh, no.
1: He was a big fan of Emily and her writing. As he was dying, he wrote to her saying that he wished he would live long enough to see the greatness that he knew she would achieve. <sighs> Later on in life, Emily, writing about Benjamin, wrote, quote, When a little girl, I had a friend who taught me immortality, but venturing too near himself... He never returned.
0: Well, this is supposed to be a funny podcast.
1: I told you. She killed everybody.
0: God, maybe she is rogue.
1: Shortly after that, as luck would have it, Emily's mother became bedridden. No. And she would be bedridden for the next 30 years until she died.
0: Okay, that's not where I thought that was going, but that's still pretty bad. Yeah. How do you stay bedridden for 30 years? You feel like after 10, you'd be like, all right, look, let's just, let's wrap this up just for everybody's sake is the worst thing Megan's ever said in her life.
1: (laughs) And so the problem was, is that there were the two daughters and they weren't sure which one should stay at home to care for the mother. And Emily decided to take it upon herself while at home, taking care of her mother, Emily decided to get a dog named a dog, Carlo.
0: Oh God, no, no, no. Now, RJ, RJ, no.
1: Carlo lived to the age of 16.
0: Oh, thank God.
1: But then it died.
0: Well, okay, but that's, that's a decent age for a dog. I can live with that.
1: She never owned another animal. Uh, the same year the dog died. No. The housekeeper that had lived with them got married and moved away. So now MOE oh, was. I guess that's,
0: that's the one that she started making bread for instead.
1: So MOE had to care for the house, her mother, and her father, as well as write. So she just never had any time to leave.
0: You see, when I told it, it was a fun story about how she liked to bake, and you just went and made it sad. Wait. Wait. There's more. Oh, no! 1874? Yeah.
1: Her dad died.
0: Uh, Had a stroke. Of course.
1: Uh, Emily did not attend the funeral. She listened from her bedroom. She wrote of her father, quote, His heart was pure and terrible, and I think no other like it exists.
0: That sounds complicated.
1: Almost exactly a year later, her mother had a stroke. Uh, her mother, who was already bedridden.
0: Yeah, just been chilling, bedridden. I mean, not chilling, presumably she was not having a good time.
1: Now was bedridden with paralysis and an impaired memory. Jesus Christ. 1882, Charles Wadsworth, who we'll talk about later on He was the man who published the few poems that Emily got to publish in her lifetime And became integral in her writing, basically education He died in 1882 She killed him too? Killed him too Her favorite youngest nephew died in 1883 He died of typhoid
0: Of course
1: He was like five.
0: Ah have time to become her favorite nephew do you think her other family members at that point were just like she's like oh you're, you're my fa- in this horrible like trying time you're my favorite and they're like no emily no don't say that it was just the death sentence if you were if you brought any joy to emily dickinson's life your days were numbered
1: it's true you had to stay away from her she secluded herself oh so in 1884, at this point, after all these deaths, she wrote that, quote, the dines have been too deep for me, and before I could raise my heart from one, another has come. And she feared that another great darkness was coming. This time she was foretelling her own sickness and death. Huh. She developed some sort of kidney disease, they called it Bright's disease, which apparently just stood in for all sorts of kidney disease.
0: So they were just making shit up back then, just just doing their best.
1: Well, it, it was a diagnosis. It just wasn't specific to a specific kidney disease. It was kind of just a stand-in. We now know it's just different kinds of kidney diseases.
0: Hi, Mrs. Dickinson. I'm your doctor. Your kidney's broke.
1: But after uh, two and a half years of struggling with that, she wrote a final batch of letters to all her family. The final letters she ever wrote were to her cousins, which simply said, Little cousins called back Emily. And then she died. Oh,
0: my God. All right. It was a (laughs)
1: happy-go-lucky life for Emily Dickinson.
0: All right. I'm going to amend the statement that I made earlier in the podcast where I said that it is reductive when, you know, your teacher says, like, Emily Dickinson was a recluse who wrote a bunch of poetry and that she was also, you know, kind of had a lot of cool and badass interests and hobbies to... um, I'm going to amend that, too. It's reductive when your teacher says she was a recluse who wrote a lot of poetry what they should say is she was a beacon of a tragedy who had a lot of varied interests and wrote a lot of poetry.
1: I guess they don't want to teach high schoolers about someone who is just surrounded by death all the time.
0: I just, I'm i all swept up in Dickinson feels right now. Where, where are we going to move from here?
1: Well, so I think it explains you know, part of why she secluded herself. She had to care for her mother, excuse or not. And then everything she touched, everyone she cared about, died. So it becomes understandable on why she turned inwards. One of the more interesting things about her is just the publication of her works both during her life versus after her life.
0: That's when stuff starts popping off. Um but so the works that she did have published while she was alive, um there's some bullshit there if you want to go into a little more detail.
1: Now, when it came to publication during her lifetime, you have to understand that Emily Dickinson wrote about 1,800 poems. It's
0: taken me two and a half weeks to do my laundry. So of that insane, unattainable uh, number of poems that she wrote within her lifetime, very, 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 very very few of them were published while she was alive.
1: For my research, I believe less than 10 were ever published during her lifetime, and even of the 10 that were published, what Emily did, because she didn't go out into the world, is she would read magazines, you know, newspapers, and she would write directly to the editor saying, hey, I write, here's some of my stuff. Do you think I'd get it published? What do you think about it? Because she wanted feedback, because the only feedback she really ever got was to her family. But so what would happen is the publishers would change titles, they would change words in the poem they would change entire stanzas the way emily wrote was a lot different than people were writing in the 19th centuries she was using slant rhyme
0: a slant rhyme in case you're not familiar with it is a half-assed rhyme
1: Can you give me an example
0: uh i mean it's you know it kind of sort of rhymes but but then it don't Um, you think it do but you, you think it do but it don't in one of the poems that I'm actually going to read in a little bit. And because I could not stop for death, uh, she makes rhymes like, Since then to centuries and yet feel shorter than the day, I first surmise the horse's heads were toward eternity. Day and eternity do not rhyme.
1: But the end and why?
0: So yeah, you kind of have to do it like, Feel shorter than the day, I first surmise the horse's heads were toward eternity.
1: And publishers didn't like it. They didn't want to challenge people. And it wasn't until after her death that people then recognized the skill that she had. But so an example of the way publishers would change her poems, the aforementioned or at least formerly referred to A Narrow Fellow in the Grass was retitled The Snake. (laughs) Or Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers was changed to The Sleeping." You know, part of that being that Emily never wrote titles to her poems, but we've come to title her poems based on the first line. And that's basically how she titled her poems at the time. It's a pretty good example of how she worded it versus how it was published, in this case in The Republican. But so the original wording is as follows. I taste a liquor never brewed, from tanker scooped in pearl. Not all the frankfurt berries, yield such an alcohol to the version that was published i taste a liquor never brewed from tanker scooped in pearl not frank berries yield the sense such a delirious whirl. so the publishers would just completely change the words completely change the rhymes just do whatever the
0: hell they wanted
1: they did whatever they wanted while telling her you got skill kid keep it up so it's probably not all that surprising given this kind of feedback even though she did get published that as she got on in life and up in years, Emily told her sister, when she dies, burn everything. She didn't find the poems until much later on. And at that point, when she read through it, she thought, oh, wait, this stuff kind of seems good. Maybe I don't want to burn it. You know, what should I do with it? And so there's two major actors that step in here that I'm just going to give some brief background on just so we understand who they are and how it is that emily's poetry ever came to get published even after her life
0: i do want to just kind of put in here to give you the mental image of emily dickinson's sister finding 1800 poems some of which are you know just written on like nice orderly pieces of paper but some are literally written on like scraps of the backs of like envelopes and like random tiny little rips of paper and just her struggling with that with just this mountain of various papers it's kind of a wonder that uh that we you know she got it all out there
1: you would think someone who's at home all day could take the time to find a nice piece of paper to write down on
0: you would think
1: anyway so the first major actor thomas wentworth higginson He was...
0: So so these guys were safe because she was already dead, right?
1: Well, this guy got to know Emily during her life. He had correspondence with her. And he
0: survived?
1: He survived. He, I am not sure, ever met her in person.
0: Ah, that's what did it.
1: That they corresponded back and forth through letters. That he was one of the publishers that she wrote to. He never published her stuff. He said it was good. He told her keep doing what you're doing but that because she wasn't fitting within the rules of literature at the time he didn't want her to get hurt because he said if we publish it people are going to complain that you're not following the rules keep doing what you're doing but now the time isn't right and she took that as no time will ever be right then but she liked Higginson and so she kept writing with him because she liked the feedback that he gave and after Emily's death he found out about all these poems that the sister alerted him to. You know, he obviously knew that Emily was a writer. He didn't know quite how much there was. And so he's one side of it.
0: So she's just like, Higginsworth, I opened this closet and just almost drowned in this tidal wave of paper. Please come help.
1: Emily trying to kill even after her own death. Mm-hmm. The other main actor or actress, as it is in the publication of Emily's works, is Mabel Loomis Todd. So Mabel was the second wife of Emily's brother. Okay. Her brother cheated on his first wife, got with Mabel. Now Mabel maybe met Emily like once or twice in person. But again, it's like one of these things where they corresponded through letters.
0: That's how you got to keep safe from Emily Dickinson.
1: But so what happened was once Emily's sister found the poems, she really didn't want to be involved in all this. What she tried to do is she tried to get the brother's first wife involved. And Why did she
0: think that would work?
1: Because the first wife apparently really liked Emily and Emily liked her. Emily wasn't about this new life with all the cheating going on. Uh. Um, but the first wife didn't want to be involved with this family anymore. She oh. was over it.
0: Yeah, understandable.
1: And so Higginson wanted to be involved because he saw himself as helping and in, in writing with Emily throughout her life. Mabel saw a good chance to make some money. Of course. And so Mabel and Higginson kind of worked side by side to try to get some of this stuff published. However, Mabel liked editing. Emily's work
0: oh no not again
1: to the point where again changing titles changing words changing rhyme schemes where eventually Higginson just backed out he's like I'm not doing this you're changing stuff too much it's no longer what Emily wrote it's kind of your own thing and so he backed out of it eventually the first volume of poems by Emily Dickinson was published in 1890 it included a lot of alterations by Mabel um, Higginson was part of that project, but he had backed out by the end of it. He didn't want to do anything with it anymore. There was a second series that was published a year later. Now, one of the things that happened was, is the sister owned the rights to Emily's poems. Like she was like the heir that stood it on. Right. And so what was supposed to happen because the sister owns the work, but Mabel was doing all the legwork on getting it published is... All the money was supposed to go to the sister, and the sister would then pay Mabel. Okay. Mabel was just a pain in the ass and got I mean, the... She sounds it. ...got the publisher to pay her directly, and so the sister felt that she was getting paid more than she should have. And so this, there was this whole big fight on how they should split the profits.
0: So you just have a bunch of people being petty and terrible about poor Emily's poetry.
1: And the irony, of course, being... There were never any profits. <laughs> so they had this they had this huge, big, familial fight, <laughs> sister versus sister-in-law, and there were never any profits from any of the publishings. And that was basically the publication life of Emily Dickinson's work <laughs> until about 1955, when an academic actually published her work without any of the alterations. But lest you think, people cannot be pedantic and find something to complain about.
0: We we live in the internet age. Don't, 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 I less don't think that at all.
1: <laughs> so even though the guy basically took all the handwritten poems and typed them up letter for letter, what people complained about is that in Emily's handwritten poems, she puts dashes. Some dashes are longer than others. Some dashes are horizontal. Some of the dashes are angled. And so when you use typeset, You can't possibly include all that. And so in 1955, after no publication of Emily Dickinson's work, people then complained, hey, this isn't a true enough account because your dashes aren't angled correctly. How
0: dare you dash in a straight line and not diagonally?
1: And so it wasn't until... changes
0: the whole thing. Ruins it.
1: If you are interested in a volume that has all the dashes angled the correct way, the correct length, It finally happened in 1998. All 1,800 poems.
0: I I think we need to walk back uh, the statement we made in our first episode about Shakespeare. Okay, Although Shakespeare, I guess, may have been the first hipster. um, But I think Emily Dickinson may have been the ultimate hipster.
1: It wasn't until the 40s when people looked at this again where they went, you know what, this crazy lady... (laughs) She had something there. She
0: might have been on to something.
1: That instead of just being kind of weird and not following the rules, she became daring. Or, I like this one. One of the rarest flowers the sterner New England land ever bore. And so that is the history of Emily Dickinson murderer.
0: Not intentionally, I don't think. I hope. I wonder. I, I mean, I gotta say, when we when we started this episode and you posited your thesis to me, I was, I'll admit, skeptical. But you've won me over.
1: I will add, because I never knew this. This blew my mind when I read this. Emily Dickinson, if you ever seen a picture of her, it must be the one of her. Because there's only one picture of her, um, the, of, like, a photograph. You know, there might be paintings of her, right. but there's only one photograph, and... The photograph I've seen, I've always assumed that she was a black-haired, you know, fair-skinned woman. Yeah. Because that was in New England. That's what's in the photo. But apparently, she had red hair. Like, broke. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, but people write about her. She was always apparently wearing white, and she had red hair.
0: Huh. All right, this is going from, like, a conspiracy theory to, like, a legit thing. So to uh, circle back around to the thing that I I briefly mentioned while we were talking about where you brought up the uh, religious revival and that she did not seem uh, to be a particularly religious person in any sense, that takes on an interesting kind of cast when you look at her actual poems, which are all written in a very specific format, and a very specific meter? Meter might not be the right word for this because... I'm not a poet.
1: Meters the beats. Yes. Okay.
0: Maybe I am doing it right. Our neither of our degrees are in poetry, so might use some terms wrong. Might might fuck some stuff up. So just apologizing beforehand. Anyway, what? Why are you looking at me like that? Poetry. Poetry's hard. I got nothing but respect for for poets. Shit's difficult. Stop rolling your eyes. I can write a poem. Oh yeah, you could write a poem. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking of that fucking poem that Homer writes from The Simpsons right
1: now. Oh, shit!
0: (laughs) 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 And he's gone. Are you going to read it?
1: Megan. RJ. I think you're overstating the difficulty of writing poetry.
0: Pray tell why.
1: I'm going to drop some lines right now.
0: I'm gonna keep in that shit of you giggling already, so.
1: <laughs> there was once a rapping tomato. That's right, I said a rapping tomato. He rapped all day from April to May, and guess what? It was me.
0: <laughs> one day there will be an episode where we don't reference or steal a joke from The Simpsons, and this is not one of them.
1: Have we in other episodes? <laughs>
0: God, they're just gone from your mind as soon as they end, aren't they?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea what we do. You were talking about religion. Oh, meter.
0: yeah, yeah. Before, before you completely <laughs> sidelined this whole conversation with your. your I got to work
1: in jokes, Opus
0: from Homer Simpson. Uh, most of her poems are written in the style of hymns, so they they function like a religious song what a hymn is right?
1: it would make sense that emily used hymns as a basis for her writing you as i said you know her family were puritans they came over on the mayflower religion was big in her family's life maybe not specifically in her own i know when she was a teenager in one of her poems what she wrote is some keep the sabbath going to church i keep it staying at home and so she was never really big on going to church, but maybe, you know, she liked people singing. Mm. And how did people sing it in the 1800s? It was hymns. It was specifically church hymns.
0: There were no good boy bands in the 1800s.
1: It's true. And actually, church plays a role in one of my favorite lines from Emily in her correspondence with a late-life fling that she had with a man she never met, of course. Of course. Only through letters.
0: Were they Were they sexy letters?
1: So I'll read you a line from the correspondence of what Emily wrote to the man.
0: You're not answering my questions, but
1: go well, ahead. why answer when I can give you direct evidence and you can draw your own conclusions? All right, go for it. RJ reports. You decide. <laughs> this is the no spin zone.
0: Well, read the letter line.
1: So Emily wrote, While others go to church, I go to mine. For you are not my church, and we have not a hymn. That no one knows but us.
0: I mean, I guess that's kind of sexy in a really oblique sort of way. I mean, you know, that's that's, uh, that's no Fifty Shades of Grey.
1: He was her church.
0: Oh, that's really sweet. You are my place where I have to sit still for two hours while someone tells me that I have to be good or I'm going to hell. Now that we've kind of given you the tour de Emily Dickinson, we thought it would be cool if we talked about i mean obviously you know there are 1800 poems to cover here we ain't gonna hit them all so rj and i selected three um on our own that we liked the most through the either that we knew about beforehand and enjoyed or through the course of our research that we read and we like this is super awesome and so we're gonna read those for you and uh kind of break them down all right rj you go first
1: there was once a wrapping tomato <laughs> That's right. I said wrapping tomato. He rapped all day from April to May. And also, guess what? It was me. So when I first read this poem... <laughs> oh, no.
0: Truly ahead of her time, Miss Emily Dickinson.
1: I taste a liquor never brewed, from tankard scooped in pearl. Not all the frankfurt berries yield such an alcohol. Inebriate of air am I, and d'albache of dew. Reeling through endless summer days... From inns of molten boil, when landlords turn the drunken bee, out of the foxglove's door, when butterflies renounce their drams, I shall but drink some more, till surfers swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run, to see the little tippler, leaning against the sun.
0: So I feel like um, you definitely get her interest in you know nature and stuff present in there. I have a master's degree in English. There's a lot of flowers in this poem.
1: Very good. You caught the imagery. (laughs) Yeah. I think she sees herself solitary. That you get that flavor of it where she's the Did you
0: just say flavor? (laughs)
1: Flavor. (laughs) Welcome to Flavortown. (laughs) I mean, I think part of it is you see that she is kind of solitary. She tastes a liquor never brewed before. And so she sees the world unlike other people. And that's the first line. You know, maybe when she went on her journeys through the woods, she had a bedroom mother, so mom didn't go with her. Dad was in the state house and everyone sister, else was dead. So everyone else was <laughs> dead, sister was gone, brother was cheating. And so she went out into the woods, saw all this happen, wrote about it. I like the imagery and I like just the idea of her just taking it all in and having been in New England myself. I don't know what the hell she's seeing because it is a depressing <laughs> hellhole up there. All right, the next one now. Megan. RJ. I need you to really put on your literary cap here and try to figure out what the mood is and what it is she's writing about.
0: All right. I mean, I had my Burger King crown on before, but I'm taking it off now and the literary cap is coming on.
1: I felt the funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro keep treading treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through and when they all were seated a service like a drum kept beating beating till i thought my mind was going numb and then i heard them lift the box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again then space began to toll as the heavens were a bell and being but an ear and i In silence, some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke. And I dropped down and down, and hit a world at every plunge, and finished knowing then.
0: Oof that's a journey.
1: It's a journey I feel it captures the subject very well. And I think it again gives insight into what she saw you know, going on around her as everyone dropped like flies
0: i mean just in in terms of of just sheer imagery like i don't feel like you can't get much better than i felt a funeral in my brain like that's like god the next time that you just feel beat to shit and someone asks how you're doing like look them dead in the eye and be like I feel a funeral in my brain and they'll just be like, shit, say no more.
1: Functionally, one of the things I like about it is when she repeats, you know, a couple of the words again and again, you can feel it, that they're treading, that they're treading, that it's beating and it's beating. Um, And kind of harkens back to what you were saying earlier, where she kind of follows her own rules, where she just finds what she likes to do and then she does it. Um, And I think this is a good example of it. And then the third and last one I would like to read, "I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. they'd advertise. you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name, the livelong June to an admiring bog.
0: I actually like that one a lot too. that was that was one I didn't want to give to you. <laughs>
1: Well, why do you like it then?
0: I mean, I like it because I, I mean, I like it because it is—it's very playful, and you can—I mean, it's—it's it's, that's why it's really interesting. It's like those two poems were written by the same person, you know, because that one's much more—it's much more casual. It's—it is much more sort of teasing, uh, and it is—it's almost kind of like a, a middle finger to someone who she never even would know. Who would say, you know, oh, she, she lived in obscurity. She, like, how, how wonderful it is to be nobody. To not have any pressure. To not have anybody, like, up your ass about stuff. To just be.
1: I agree with a lot of what you said. And I do like the playfulness of it. And again, although here I think she gets an actual rhyme. She rhymes frog with bog. How about that? It's a lot less slanted than most of her rhymes. And yeah, just playful. That this is a happier moment for her. So
0: the first of the uh, three poems that I picked is probably her most famous one. And so I kind of picked that one because I felt like it's like, well, we got to talk about this one. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held, but just ourselves, and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away... My labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove, at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer my gown, my tippet, only tool. We passed before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity. eternity. <laughs> There's a lot of bullshit rhymes in this poem. I'm just going to start there. Like, she, one of the only true rhymes in this poem, she's rhyming ground with ground.
1: Look, she had a real easy chance here to rhyme haste with paste. Talking about school, that's what I was waiting for.
0: Yeah, he knew no haste. We passed the school where children ate the paste. <laughs> yeah, obviously this is, if anyone knows Emily Dickinson, this is usually the poem that they know. She gets picked up by, by death. She dies, and away they go. Um, so, I mean, for the most part, I feel like it's fairly straightforward, although you might not know, like, she's, you know, the the dude drew quivering and chill for only gossamer, my clown, my tippet, my gown, my tippet-only tool is kind of a, a rough one. Saying she's not properly, like, dressed for a funeral, but more for, like, she's wearing almost like a uh, nightdress kind of thing. And so, you know, she wasn't prepared when death came. Hence, because I could not stop for death. You know, you can't be like, alright i'm ready now he just shows up and he's like get in the car bitch rj your thoughts on this poem
1: what do you think death looked like in the 1800s i mean i know what he looks like nowadays think he looked the same back then
0: i mean i don't know i mean if you if you really want to answer that question i'd have to look up like oh different... we're not doing that forget it well what what joke did you expect me to follow out with <laughs> like what do you think death looked like i don't know like a <laughs> like a fucking dude I, brad pitt in um in, he was a hot guy Meet back joe then. black
1: <laughs> God, Jesus.
0: um so the second one i picked which is like an actual favorite favorite is tell all the truth but tell it slant tell all the truth but tell it slant success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight the truth superb surprise as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Look at that. She's, ry- she's rhyming up a storm. Yeah. Um, so I like this one again because it's, it it's kind of playful. It's got that same sort of mocking tone to it. And it's just like, you can't handle the truth.
1: Well, I like the irony of the poem. Oh? Well, she's talking about slant. And yet, this is a poem where she doesn't use slant rhyme, she actually uses, what do you
0: call it? Like, regular rhyme. I really doubt (laughs) they call
1: it regular rhymes.
0: (laughs) And as you can see, this poetry features what is known as regular rhymes. Now I can look it up. Yeah, you're going to look it up. We're not poetry majors. A
1: perfect rhyme.
0: Ah, perfect rhyme. You know what? I wasn't that far off.
1: Because there are half rhymes, imperfect rhymes, near rhymes, oblique rhymes, and off rhymes.
0: Jesus Christ, how do poets do anything?
1: Read your third poem, Mac.
0: All right. Uh, so this third one is the one that is uh, closest to my heart. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land... And on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity, it asked a crumb of me. So I just, I mean, God, for someone whose life was just so unspeakably depressing and tragic to have this poem that's just so filled with hope, that it personifies hope as this this little kind of fragile bird that can still weather the strongest storms and and protect people and give them something and never asks for anything in return there's not really a good gag there or a a dick joke that i can make it's just really emotionally resonant to me
1: i will let it stand rj megan
0: emily dickinson good bad
1: murderer ahead of her time i feel clearly broke the rules did not enjoy the fruits of her labor, got mistreated after her life for about 50 years until people actually published her actual work.
0: With the wrong dashes, thank you very much. Megan. RJ.
1: Dick. Um. Emily Dick Incense. Jesus
0: Christ. I, you know, I was waiting, like waiting the whole episode for that shoe to drop. All
1: right, I'll ask you for Megan. RJ. Emily Penison. Oh. (laughs) Alright, come on. Let's finish up this episode. Megan? RJ? No, you... That's not good. You gotta... RJ? No, just... (laughs) Come on. Just do it. Megan? RJ? Emily Schmeckelsen.
0: Oh my god, you're the worst person on this earth. (laughs) Megan? (laughs) No, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing it.
1: (laughs) No, alright, one final time. Come on. Megan?
0: RJ?
1: Emily Dickinson? Oh, thank God. Schmeckle.
0: Son of a bitch. Emily Dickinson was a really good poet. She hasn't gotten the proper due or recognition when she was alive for a long time after she was dead. And arguably still today, even though, you know, clearly academics and stuff uh, appreciate her genius now. Most kids in like high school and college are only getting weird shut-in poem lady version. So there, that's what I think. This episode is over. So, this, uh, this pretty much wraps things up for Ono oh Lit Class. If you enjoy our particular brand of literary-themed nonsense, then we ask you to um, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us, leave us some ratings. Leave us a review. Leave us a weird review. You can also listen to us on Google Play um, at our website, onolitclass.com. Please, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr at onolitclass.tumblr.com, and maybe follow us on Twitter at onolickclass, because it turns out we're really bad at Twitter. So, uh, you know, share the love. Tell people about the thing. Uh, we'd like to thank Beste for the use of his song as our intro, uh, Man of the Year, Heavy Sleep. We forgot to thank him in the last episode, because we're terrible. You can, if you like his music, you can listen to more of it on soundcloud.com slash best-day. The next episode will be out on March 30th. This has been Ono oh Licklass. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. I love you more. <laughs> best-day. Hey, wait, he's, Best Day's calling me. Hang on. Can I call you back in like 10 seconds? It's Best Day. We're recording right now. <laughs>